Hi, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of the Macro Trading Floor, the most actionable macro podcast in the world. I'm Andreas Steno. And I'm Alfonso Peccatiello. Hi, guys. Um, we are recording on July 28th, 2022, and um, Jay Powell surprised markets once again. That's not becoming a news anymore this year. Every time there is a press conference, there is something ballistic going on, Andreas. So let me ask you, what's your take on the Federal Reserve meeting and the subsequent market reaction? Well, for, first of all, um, given that the Federal Reserve is now clearly taking the same approach as the European Central Bank, it's a meeting by meeting approach after this rate hike this week, uh, which to me um, will lead to increasing volatility due to the fact that the market is uh, basically left uh, to itself in terms of assessing what will happen going forward uh, from the uh, Federal Reserve. I mean, there is no forward, forward guidance left, uh, no promises, no guidance. Um, so we will have to look at inflation numbers, first of all, and secondly, the labor market to assess whether the Federal Reserve will continue hiking or not. And I, I am of the opinion that um, the scrapping of the forward guidance actually makes it more likely that the Federal Reserve will continue hiking interest rates because they are now solely focused on lacking indicators such as the consumer price index and such as the unemployment rate or the non-farm payrolls report. Uh, and I don't think that we will have sufficient signals from either the inflation report or the non-farm payrolls report within the next, say, two, three, four months for them to turn around. Uh, so by the end of the day, uh, it could actually be that the Federal Reserve will continue hiking to an even larger extent uh, given this meeting by a meeting approach. But boy, equities partied like there was no tomorrow after this message from the Federal Reserve. Uh, I mean, uh, Alfonso, what do you make of that? A big rally after a rate hike. Yeah, that's uh, exactly what I tried to answer in the Macro Compass article just released. I noticed there, and I'm going to repeat it here as well, this is the biggest inflation fight that central bankers ever had to engage in over the last 35 years. And yesterday, Powell somehow, I'm not sure it was really his intention, but it came across as if being at neutral rates and hiking mildly above neutral rates would be more than enough to achieve uh, the result. Historically, that's never been the case with such uh, inflationary prints. You normally had to have rates much higher than neutral to bring inflation down and for a longer period of time. But also from a credibility perspective and from a policy-making incentive scheme perspective, Andreas, when you're engaging in such a fight, how can you credibly and sustainably pivot dovish unless you have actually seen progress in the composition and momentum of inflation? Right now, we haven't seen any progress whatsoever. <laughs> to, to, to say the truth, we have only seen it worsening the whole time. But the market heard a story where, well, if the Fed is going to be fully data dependent, and the bond market has such a strong opinion that inflation is going to come down very aggressively. One year forward, one year CPI swaps, inflation expectations, basically in the US, in PCE terms, are at 2.5%. We're talking about the summer of 2023. It's basically around the corner. And the market already thinks that by the second half of 2023, inflation is roughly back at the Federal Reserve target. If you think they're data dependent, which only means they are CPI prints dependent, and you price such a downward sloping uh, inflation swap forward curve, 
you can also translate all your pricing towards risk assets because that means they will have to slow down and that means valuations can expand again. That means you go and chase the most risk asset out there, the most valuation intensive assets out there. So you, you chase the NASDAQ, you chase Bitcoin, Ethereum, anything you can get your hands on, right? I just don't think that narrowing risk premia with all this bond market volatility that ditching forward guidance implies is necessarily a sound strategy. I mean, I wrote yesterday that the bottom line of all of this is that the Fed will continue to hike until stuff breaks seriously. Um, and to me, the short conclusion uh, in such a scenario is to stay tilted short, high beta stuff such as tech stocks, crypto, um, maybe even commodities broadly, and then buy dollar cash and buy long bonds. I think that's interesting. Uh, again, if you look at the market reaction, at least initially, and we see it again today, uh, long bonds actually perform on the heels of this 75 basis points hike. Uh, and it is a clear signal from the bond market that uh, for every time the Fed hikes interest rates, they will have to cut more ultimately. Uh, and I think that pattern will continue. Although the dynamic has a little bit changed, as in the curve is bull steepening after uh, the conference. Again, Andreas attaching this evidence that because they're data dependent and be contingent on the fact that inflation expectations are pointing to such a deceleration in the CPI basket, they will have to hike less this year, which means they'll have to cut less later on. So we're basically pricing in a more nuanced data-driven Fed contingent on the fact that inflation will slow down. And this seems to me a quite, um, at least uh, optimistic and premature attempt at pricing a dovish pivot amongst the biggest inflation fight central banks had to, had to face over the last 35 years. The other thing is inflation is going to slow down. What does it exactly mean? I mean, the composition of the CPI basket is also very important and there are sticky and less sticky components. Energy remains one of the main drivers. Now moving for a second, the attention towards Europe. There has been quite some developments as well on that front over the last week when it comes to the energy uh, security situation in Europe as well over winter. Can you please brief us, Andreas, what's going on? Well, um, the EU has been stuck in negotiations um, on the gas consumption over winter. Um, and it seems as if they've at least partly agreed on um, a deal uh, that will um, force each and every member country more or less uh, to slow consumption by almost 15% um, of the regular consumption of natural gas, uh, which is basically needed uh, if Europe is to avoid a rationing scenario of natural gas. But I mean, ultimately, I guess the bottom line is the same whether you force people to ration or whether they do it independently ahead of the uh, actual uh, deadline or threshold. Uh, so I think this is a very clear signal that we will see a manufacturing uh, recession in, in Europe because it will obviously lead to uh, less production capacity if we are to ration gas to this extent. Uh, and I don't really see any solution um, to, to this issue over the short run unless uh, a, a deal um, with the Russians um, will be in place within, say, two, three, four months from now, because otherwise we will have to ration gas, um, given the outlook for um, for the inflow of natural gas from uh, from Russia. Uh, and 
I mean, it's very visible if you watch the uh, electricity markets at the moment, uh, the December 2020 electricity base load future in Germany um, has gone absolutely ballistic over the past week. Uh, it's pricing above 500 euros per megawatt hour. Um, and I think that's in between 10 and 15 times the regular price for um, uh, for, 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 for electricity. Uh, we, we had a scenario uh, less than a week ago where London paid around 5,000% more than usual for one hour of, uh, of uh, electricity to avoid a shutdown. Um, so they imported uh, electricity from Belgium uh, in a last minute maneuver. Uh, so you better get used to it. Um, this is a theme that will haunt the Eurozone throughout the autumn, I think. I totally agree, Andreas. Also, you cannot print your way away either via fiscal deficits or by trying to inject liquidity to back fiscal deficits or do price controls or do rationing. You can't actually solve a fiscal scarcity problem in a financialized way. And that will remain, unfortunately, an issue for the Eurozone until we can either secure uh, energy and commodity flows from somewhere else, which is sometimes even logistically very complicated, and or, as you rightfully pointed out, we can actually sort out something between Russia, Ukraine, and Europe, which is not going to be easy. A short quiz for you, Alfonso. Um, if you look at the electricity production in Europe, um, which member country of the European Union has the highest percentage of the electricity consumption based on natural gas? What would be your guess? Based on natural gas? Yes. Wow, not an expert in that. Uh, but because you're asking me, I'm going to go with game theory and I'm going to say Italy. Bingo. Uh, and I mean, it's actually underreported. Uh, I, I mean, the most media outlets talk about Germany being worse, uh, worse yeah. off. Uh, but uh, I'd say that the Netherlands and, and Italy are the two um, uh, countries worst off when it comes to the electricity production. Uh, so basically, where you live and where you're from. <laughs> Sorry, Elf. <laughs> oh, don't, don't, wor don't worry, Andreas, because in Italy, we're going to have a super nice, friendly government and a very effective one somewhere in October, November, because, you know, you always have to be positive about Italian elections, right? Yeah. No, you don't. <laughs> All right. So another problem for these guys. Let's see how, how they sort it out. Uh, Andreas, before we jump into the show uh, and present our guest, I'd like to remind people that uh, in uh, September, actually on uh, September 13th and 14th, in New York at the Glass House in Manhattan, there's going to be the Digital Asset Summit Conference from Blockworks, where you're going to find, amongst others, as a speakers, Mike Green, Juliet Trim, uh, Timmer, uh, Daniel DiMartino Booth, Brent Johnson, and nonetheless, also myself in there. It's going to be quite a fun conference, Andreas. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, why that conference is relevant? Well, I, I guess this is the event for hedge funds, family offices, uh, crypto funds, etc., uh, looking into the uh, crypto asset class on, on a macro level. Um, it is a conference trying to tie together the macro landscape and the outlook for uh, digital assets overall. Uh, and I think that is highly relevant given what we see both in, in, in macro fundamentals unfolding currently, uh, but also the uh, link to the market pricing in, uh, in digital assets. Uh, and um, as, uh, as we also mentioned last week, we can actually offer you uh, a 20% discount uh, if you use the code MACRO uh, to buy your uh, place at this um, conference. 
Office in Manhattan in uh, September. So um, a big endorsement from uh, from me as well. You can find the link to the um, conference uh, in the details below um, the uh, uh, episode here, both on YouTube and in your podcast app. And you can use the code macro to get 20% off waiting to see you guys there. I can also share some insights on sourdough pizza recipes because that's indeed what I'm best at rather than macro. It is time now to introduce the guest of the week, Andreas, and I'm very excited to do so. And right now I'm very happy to introduce Dean Kernat. Dean is the founder of Macro Risk Advisors and he's the host of a great podcast called The Alpha Exchange. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Thanks, guys. Dean, it's been a tough year for investors. Um, we've seen bonds and risk assets selling off uh, simultaneously through the uh, spring and into the early summer here. Uh, what's, how will you characterize the current environment for, for risk assets in general? Yeah, I think it's uh, certainly it's a, a fascinating time for us all, for, for folks who uh, have been through various market cycles. It's one in which um, you should be humbled by how challenging it is to safely navigate uh, these markets. Um, you know, we've got, uh, I think Goldman suggested that uh, this is the worst start for the 60-40 portfolio uh, for a half a year uh, since 1932. Uh, so that goes back a ways. And of course, you know, that's associated with the Great Depression. So uh, boy, it, it just gives you a sense as, as to the magnitude. Um, look, I think the setup is really worth going back to and, and, and contemplating. And, and that setup is one in which um, you certainly had um, pricey equity valuations. Um, let's say, you know, in, in 2018, 2019, there was complaints that, uh, boy, this market was getting a little frothy. We had the COVID crash, um, the necessary monetary medicine, uh, the massive fiscal stimulus. Hard to argue that it wasn't uh, something that the U.S. government should have embarked upon, uh, but there's always side effects and consequences. And uh, what you wound up with was, of course, this building of this inflation dynamic and a circumstance in which, um, in a lot of ways, the richness of the stock market and bond market at the same time really became the problem. And so for me, as one who studies asset prices, studies volatility, studies correlation levels, what I was concerned about, and this really, I think, started to hit a peak mid-2021, um, because the evidence that parts of the U.S. equity market were just outright in a bubble, um, where I think were increasingly difficult to avoid acknowledging and yet by August of 2021, the U.S. 10-year touched down at a yield of 1.15%. Now, inflation wasn't 9% as it is now, but it was 5.5%. And so you had this erosion of the fundamentals in the bedrock of uh, asset classes, the risk-free asset class. Its fundamental picture was eroding. I like to say that inflation is sort of the uh, anti-earnings of uh, of bonds, right? It, it's the it's the worst thing that can happen to you as a bondholder, and so it was in plain sight. And what was to me uh, worrisome was that you had stock and bond prices uh, so elevated at the same time. 
And remember, we were also come through this very long period, this 20 odd year period when the stock market and bond market, and when I say bond market, I mean U.S. treasuries, uh, both had rallied over a long period of time. And yet on a daily basis, if you look at their correlations, they were minus 40 to minus 50% negatively correlated. And so really this was the, uh, the, the, uh, underpinning of the idea that you could put together a portfolio of, of stocks and bonds and have positive returns on both elements of the portfolio and yet a negative daily correlation. That's nirvana. And there was just way too much leaning into this idea that bonds could be this risk mitigation tool during the risk off that they consistently were as per my comment on the negative correlation. But when you get to a to a 1.15% nominal yield amidst five plus percent uh, inflation, as we did last August, it really begs the question as to what you can expect from bonds during the next equity risk off. And to me, the really proper investigation was, um, are bond yields going to cause the risk off? Is it going to be a rise in bond yields that's actually the sponsoring element of the risk off? And that's really just what's happened. The, the inflation dynamics, obviously, no one could have predicted they would have gotten this bad, I think. But um, the mismatch between inflation dynamics and bond yields, to me, was the tell that equities were very vulnerable. The, the, they were pricey and they were vulnerable to uh, a risk off that was really sponsored by higher bond yields. Um, and so we're working our way through it. It's mm -hmm. a really uncertain time. If, if we look at the uh, current reporting season, uh, we see a lot of elevated figures uh, in terms of top line growth. Uh, but if we look a bit beneath the surface, um, a couple of the big retailers are, for example, telling us that volumes are starting to drop. Um, would you expect that demand destruction needs to unfold throughout the next two, three, four quarters? to contain the inflationary pressures that we currently faced with? Yeah, so I, I'm certainly not an economist. I'm reading whatever I can on inflation dynamics. I think the best in the business on this stuff uh, is uh, these folks are also um, quite challenged to understand what the inflation process really is. I, I always bring up the quote from Janet Yellen. She said, I think it was circa 2016 or 17, she said, inflation is a mystery. Not exactly um, uh, words that give us a lot of confidence coming from the head of the head of the Fed. So the inflation process is is um, it's so difficult to understand. It interacts obviously with uh, with monetary policy through rates. Uh, it interacts with financial conditions. Uh, you know, I've always said we live in a uh, the U.S. as a a, a a market that is so financialized. Uh, we're we're a very wealth oriented economy. And so when folks like Bill Dudley, who was a uh, president of the New York Fed and now uh, does some consulting, starts talking about the Fed needing to um, to tighten financial conditions. If I do a regression of financial conditions versus the S&P, there are minus 75 percent correlated. Right. Mm -hmm. So to me, that was it's another sign that, yeah, listen, part of the process here is very potentially going to lead to lower stock prices, to not just demand destruction, but wealth destruction, um, you know, through housing and, and through other um, parts of the more cyclical oriented uh, components of the economy. I think the big questions are from the Fed is, uh, 
what data do they really want to focus on? You have um, more real-time data um, metrics that suggest that uh, it, its policies are already having a significant impact. Copper, well off its highs, right? You have the dollar rallying. We People like to talk about the dollar wrecking ball um, as a as a kind of a international VIX, right? Something that plays a role in yeah. tightening financial mm-hmm. conditions. The dollar is 4% of the um, the Goldman Sachs financial conditions index. Um, so you have these real-time measures, and, and I'd also throw in break-even inflation. It's way down from its highs, right? So, so some of this, the market's already telling you is working. Um, if you, but if the Fed is looking a little bit backwards and it's feeling the heat from the politics of a 9.1% realized CPI, and yeah, I get it. The Fed wants to talk about core PCE, but no one cares about core PCE. It's it's uh, f- food and energy is all that matters, right, for the U.S. consumer and, and for the global consumer. It's it's everywhere. So I think the Fed has got a lot of trouble, or it's a it's a challenging time for the Fed to say, well, we look at core inflation. That's not politically palatable right now. And so there's this balance, right? If you if it if the Fed's looking directly behind it. It's looking at very scary inflation numbers. If it's looking at more real-time data, um, as I as I cited some of those metrics, maybe some of it's starting to work its way through, right? We, we know about housing for sure. There's a there's definitely a slowdown in housing that's coming, and and people like to say so goes housing, so goes the economy, right? Um, I think that the the challenge is going to be for markets is that the market is adjusting to a Fed that really leaned into forward guidance. It enjoyed the ability to tell the market how the movie was going to progress well in advance, right? And when I know what's going to happen in advance, I can set up trades that essentially capitalize on that. Those effectively are some version of a short vol trade. Um, There's been recent discussion about the death of forward guidance. I think that's a real thing. Um, I'm, I'm not unhappy to see it gone as well. I think forward guidance was actually part of the problem. Um, and so, you know, the Fed is going to be meeting by meeting, and that's just going to lead to a, a higher um, realized and implied vol environment across most asset classes, right? I mean, the VIX is sitting here at 23, 24, depending on your day, um, but measures of, uh, of rate vol, uh, really, really high, right? And that's, again, that's not just U.S., that's certainly in the Eurozone. That's even happening in Japan now. <laughs> Um, commodity vol extremely high, uh, and then of course even FX vol is is well off uh, what, what it was you know a year ago. So um, you know all things considered, it's uh, it's as data dependent I think a Fed as we've seen in, in such a long time. And um, again, Fed policy is just not market friendly when the Fed is battling inflation from so far so far above target as it is now. So, Dean, what really strikes me here is that from the macro picture you're depicting, we have a Fed that is very fixated on tightening financial conditions as a way to reverse a bit the wealth effect and hit the demand side of the equation. And they've been successful in equities, in credit spreads, in the dollar, uh, you can argue in break-evens as well, in commodities now, ilker flattening, vol up across the board, but in equities. And your background is actually uh, an equity derivatives background for what I know, at least. So I'd like to get the opportunity to ask you, 
why is, let's say, realized vol in equities picking up a bit, but implied vol definitely not. So any measure that resembles a VIX is not moving at all. What's going on? Yeah, there's, there's a really interesting story to be told here. Um, and um, equity vol has, uh, over a long period of time, has, has exhibited what they call the vol risk premium. It's, uh, it's, it's evident in other markets as well. Um, FX rates, um, the sellers of insurance require compensation for bearing gap risk, right? The, the uncertainty around getting tagged on a large loss um, at, uh, at, at a given point in time. And, and so very common in equity markets has been this sort of idea of trying to use optionality to generate premium and earn carry. Um, it, it was really persistent uh, in the post-crisis period. So, you know, when the market and, and the kind of economy started to get their legs underneath them, maybe that's past the Eurozone crisis by 2013 or so. And you had many hiccups of risk along the way, but you had this long enduring period of relatively well-behaved equity markets. Um, and, and of course, rates just literally pinned to the floor, right? Um, in, in that the Fed staying in, in town so much longer than p- most people thought in that post-GFC period. And so selling equity vol in some format and there's a lot of ways to do it, uh, became kind of part of the institutional survival kit. Uh, it was, how do I manufacture yield in a world that has none? Um, and so um, that became a larger and larger part of, I think, the, the toolkit that investors were using to, to, stay, to stay live, uh, you know, again, in a, in a low to zero yield environment. Now, you had some significant hiccups along the way, uh, not to say that um, it was completely uh, uh, easy, easy going. But um, of course, the VIX event in 2018, right? The the uh, exchange traded product component of the VIX got very big in 2017. It was very low realized vol, and then this thing just kind of imploded um, in a short period of time. So there were losses taken, but then just as soon as that occurred, it sort of started to rebuild itself. And so we come into COVID, and there's this huge business sort of all the way to the side in Wall Street called risk recycling. This is the dealers who create complex products. They're, they like what they make, uh, these products. They, they sell them on to retail. They do quite well um, creating these trades, but they leave dealers with very complicated risks that they then come back into the market and bid hedge funds on. Okay, um, And so going into this COVID period, um, hedge funds were very short tails. Um, and not just hedge funds. You had uh, many of these blowups in March of 2020 were uh, well documented and they were uh, some pension funds. So Alberta Investment Management Company was short tails, lost a lot of money. Um, so through COVID, even though folks had a very difficult time owning assets, if you held on for dear life as an equity investor or even a bond investor, that repaired itself pretty quickly, right? Mm-hmm. By Six months later, you were back to even and then you were off to the races. For equity derivatives investors, those losses in March and April of 2020 were crystallized. That money was gone. And so what what occurred in the, let's say, year after COVID uh, was uh, what I would just call a, an equity derivatives market that was vastly undersupplied in terms of volatility. 
vol was trading well north of in, in equities, well north of anything you thought it was related to. It was high relative to FX vol, relative to rate vol, very high relative to realized vol, and at great odds to credit spreads as well. Um, and I just think that that was a function of the losses that were taken by prominent uh, people that normally step in to sell this, that capital base just wasn't there. Over time, I think perhaps it's rebuilt itself. Um, and now you have almost the opposite situation. It's been quite interesting to look at where equity vol is, um, I would say probably average relative to credit spreads, uh, but certainly relative to rate vol, people like to look at the move. Um, I'll just divide move by VIX and you see a, a ratio of almost six at one point. And that's just a really high ratio. I'm not suggesting there's a tradable uh, ratio there, but it's informative. It tells you that rate vol uh, is just much higher uh, than equity vol on a time series basis relative to history. And I found that very um, at odds with, with what I thought was fundamentally justifiable because I think that Equity vol more so now than at any time is taking its cues from rate vol. Um, you know, I like to say that uh, equities are short the straddle on rates, meaning if rates go up yeah. a lot in a hurry, that's bad for equities. Mm. And if rates come down a lot in a hurry, that's bad for equities. We're kind of in the middle right now. We're, we're sort of in the sweet spot, maybe. And so equities are, you know, kind of going sideways here. Um, so it's a little bit of a head scratcher why the VIX has been so irresponsive to uh, to, to moves in, in equity markets. Um, you know, you look at past episodes of significant drawdowns in, in the market. LTCM in 98, the end of the telco bust in 2002, the sovereign crisis in 2011, um, China quasi floating its currency in 2015. Uh, these were all VIX of 40 events. Um, and the high in the VIX this time was 36 or so, 36 or 37. Um, the, the biggest difference is very simply, and, and the, the, the brightest line I can draw in terms of explaining where the VIX should be is simply carry. It's realized vol. So in those four previous risk episodes I cited, realized vol on a one-month basis always got past 40. Here, we, we topped out at uh, 36. Uh, so, you know, the market just hasn't been... It's been volatile, but it's not been as volatile as, as we've seen it during other significant drawdowns. Uh, we haven't had five or 6% daily moves. Those previous periods, we always had at least one of those. The biggest daily move we had this year is a down 4%. That's a significant move, but it's just not as high as some of the other crisis periods. So I think that's kind of where you wind up with is, you know, VIX at Again, as, we're, as we discuss it, uh, have, have this conversation, VIXA 24, realized vol on a one-month basis has come down all the way. It's now below 20. And, um, you know, if the market's not moving enough, people find it difficult to own short-dated vol, right? That's the, that's the engine that you need to, to make profits uh, in owning volatility. You need the big swings, and you're just not getting them right now. Dean, if you look at the monthly fund manager survey from Bank of America, um, I've noted how uh, there is an increasing gap between the survey um, among the fund managers on their pessimism slash optimism on the road ahead for the economy and the reported positioning from the same managers. So we have a relatively long positioning in equities uh, compared to an extreme pessimism 
in the survey. What do you make of that uh, divergence and the relation to the volatility markets? Yeah, I, you know, I think we, we are always trying to triangulate to the extent we can. We're trying to figure out what is motivating changes in price. Um, there's a great deal of study in the equity derivatives markets on mechanical flows, price agnostic buying or selling. Um, and some of that would come from the derivatives markets. We know that when you are long volatility, you're hedging uh, activities. And collectively, if the enough of the market is, quote unquote, long volatility and hedging together, that can play a role in muting the moves. Um We say that there are, you know, gamma pockets, so to speak, when uh, too many folks are short volatility at a given strike. In that case, the collective hedging can serve as a, an accelerant. Um, so it's price agnostic changes uh, or price agnostic demand for uh, or supply of equities uh, or let's say S&P futures that we should keep an eye on. Um, there's vol control, which is another sort of quasi-derivative strategy, again, that um, people get longer the market as realized vol goes down. They unwind their holdings when realized vol goes up. It's, it's again, price agnostic. I find these things very compelling from a the theory, the economics behind it. I find it really difficult to get comfortable with, do we have enough data? Mm. Um, and so, To the fund managers survey, I think these are good data points. Um, you know, people would say, okay, the fund managers survey says the market is very long. The CFTC futures data says S&P uh, speculative shorts were near all-time low in, in terms of the market was short. Mm. Um, I'll talk to some of the larger banks that I'm engaged with, and I'll ask them about their prime brokerage data for long-short hedge funds. And... The one thing I can say, and this ties back to what might be just a, uh, a VIX that's not really responsive, is that it seems like the professional community, the more active trading community amongst hedge funds, their books are just not very big. They've degrossed, their nets are small, and they're just kind of waiting. Um, and so I think there's some story maybe to be told to say that, well, maybe the VIX is just not that high because there's just not that much to protect. That's one, you know, that's one idea. Um, again, what we try to do is we we want markets to make sense. <laughs> If they don't make sense, we should all just hang it up, right? Hmm. I do think sometimes in our desire to satisfy that, uh, that cause and effect, uh, we create narratives and we try to find data points that satisfy the narrative. Um, I think sometimes we should try to do that, but sometimes it's difficult. Um, I think right now we're in this period where the worst of the inflation shock uh, is probably behind us. Again, I no crystal ball. I'm just reporting what I what I read and just reporting on 9.1% is a very high number. <laughs> It's going to be hard for the CPI to sustain itself at that level, right? It's like volatility. It, if the VIX is at 80, the odds are it's going to come down. <laughs> so yeah. there's a mean reversion element here. <clears throat> and um, I think that... Um, The market is sort of satisfied that the Fed has done enough so far, waiting to see where it goes and then waiting, as you alluded to, Andreas, to see if some of this demand destruction uh, is too much. 
right? This is why it's going to be so difficult. This is the how do you land the plane safely without not, not without doing too much or too little. This is why it's just walking a tightrope uh, for the Fed. And so right now, I feel like we're in this period of watching and waiting, and we're going to see if what the Fed has done so far is sufficient. Um, we could this this is going to take a long time. We could be in <clears throat> six or nine months staring at. 5% inflation and saying, well, that's a lot of progress, but boy, it's going to be a long ways to get back to 2% if that's truly the target. So this is going to be a long process of trying to determine, uh, you know, whether risk assets are, can hold up in this environment or if the Fed's just going to have to break everything and just be aggressive. So Dean, as we shape your macro thesis into a, uh, an investment idea, from what I understand, you are looking at a break-evens market, which is very optimistic that inflation is going to revert back relatively quick towards 2%. If you look at forward break-evens, so one year, one year forward, one year, two year forward, they all basically point to inflation back to 2% relatively rapidly. On the other hand, I hear you saying that this time, the process might be a bit more time-consuming from a Federal Reserve perspective, and they are very, very politically motivated to make sure that inflation actually comes down, what would be one of the best risk-reward expressions of such an environment in your playbook? Well, I think there's a couple of things to, to spend time on. And I think as you're alluding to, uh, Alf, the, the curve and, and what it implies for forward rates is pretty fascinating to stare at. Um, the, the speed with which the market was impounding hikes and then the speed with which those hikes stopped and then became cuts. Um, I don't think there's a lot of precedent to that at all. I've talked to some folks and they might argue something like 94 was akin to it. But boy, this is steep up and then steep down. Um, I think the fading the steep down is a pretty interesting thing to contemplate in, in various formats. So I'm not sitting here trading uh, rate derivatives or euro dollar futures curves and, and so forth. But I, I think the, the the hard work might have already just begun, potentially. Uh, and what I mean by that is this idea that, listen, 9-1 is not going to persist for CPI. They're going to make some progress. Some of this stuff is just going to roll off. Um, so the, you know, the, the base effects uh, will allow 9-1 to become something considerably lower. But then again, the question becomes, um, the degree to which uh, we step back and we realize that the, the 20 years of significant and extreme globalization, you know, what that meant for um, goods inflation uh, for, again, for, for 20 years, that that's just behind us. And that the process of getting from nine to five might be a lot easier than getting from five to two and a half. And then, you, of course, you have to just ask yourself, well, how tolerant will be the Fed of getting kind of stuck um, well below here in terms of inflation, but also well north of its target? And that could be, again, we might be asking this question six to nine months yeah. uh, from now. So my main thesis has been that tech stocks, and I'll just use the triple Q as the proxy, um, has been the most vulnerable. I, uh, I devised this. Uh, little thesis that I called the Fab Five. And the Fab Five is a, uh, 
is is a saying uh, or was a a U.S. basketball team, the 1991 um, uh, University of Michigan uh, NCAA team, uh, were composed of a incredible group of freshman basketball players, the Fabulous Five. And these guys came on the court as freshmen and they were all starters and they took the team all the way to the NCAA. So it was 30 years uh, from 1991 that this happened. So last year I started thinking about this and I said, you know, I think there's a Fab Five sarcastically in, in markets now. And, and, and for the Triple Q, the Fab Five uh, was the following. It's um, valuation, which we talked about, extremely extended, especially for tech stocks. Concentration, the five, the top five stocks were 50% of the index. That's not healthy. Um, correlation, we talked about this undoing of the correlation between stock and bond prices that was so favorable that it was going to flip from positive, from negative to positive. And the incredible implications for risk managing a portfolio when that correlation flipped. Um, duration, the duration of the stock market has gotten longer and longer, and especially the duration of tech stocks, right? These are what they like to call long duration assets. They don't pay dividends. It's all about um, the growth that's implied and discounting that growth at extremely low rates. That's why these stocks did so well. And then, of course, the central to the whole thesis is inflation. So those are the Fab Five. And to me, um, this tech stock um, you know, bubble is really set to come undone. Um, I think it's you can make an argument that there's still more to come from here. Um, and again, the argument is just that we just have not fully appreciated how long and persistent this Fed hiking cycle might be. And that, um, as you uh, referenced, maybe those break evens, especially now that they've come in, are too low. And we might have to, you know, reevaluate those in in six to 12 months. Um, so I, I've really been trying to get people to think about um, put structures on the triple Q as a function of this this inflation dynamic. So, Dean, if if we take your assumptions at face value, uh, we may be in for uh, an environment that kind of resembles late 2000, early 2001, with a, a continued slide in in tech stocks. Uh, but we always allow our guests an early exit option, um, <laughs> and. Um, As you know, Dean, um, a bad excuse is better than none. So if you're wrong on these assumptions, what could be the reason or the trigger for you being wrong? Yeah, I think the, uh, so it's a great point. We should be so humbled by these markets. Uh, pr prediction is a very, very difficult business. I think you just try to learn and you try to um, create value in trade construction that effectively gives you an off-ramp. Um, and so- My my area of focus is volatility. I like to say that I could turn an eight-year-old or an 80-year-old into a vol trader. It's just about the price, right? You could convince anybody to go long or short vol just about the price. And so, um, you know, the VIX doesn't provide a lot of insurance when it's at 83, which is the all-time high during March of 2020. And, you know, you saw actually in the in the climax of the selling That uh, was the COVID crash in 20, in March of 2020. The market was going down and the VIX was falling a lot. 
that just doesn't happen that often. It just showed you how elevated vol was. Um, so in terms of trade construction, I think what you're trying to do is find trades that you could put on, risk some premium, not too much. Um, and then if it, if your trade doesn't work, um, have an opportunity to, to number one, preserve some of that premium too. You're not going to put a trade on that's, uh, that's an option trade that gives you a free look. That's not an honest rendering of how markets work. If you're paying premium, um, and time goes by and your trade is not working out, you're going to get less premium back than what you initially extended. The question is, how do you try to put a trade on that preserves as much premium as possible? Um, and so what, what we've been doing uh, in, in the triple Q is um, not buying outright puts um, and not even buying. So those are expensive. Uh, and, you know, if you look at the performance of basic hedging strategies this year, relative to the degree of the drawdown, I'm not saying the hedging strategies haven't made money or offset losses, but they've offset less of the loss than you would have expected. Uh, and so it's been a tough year. And maybe, again, this is back to the maybe controlled nature of the sell-off. We covered a lot of ground, right? The, the Qs have lost a, a lot of a lot in, over the course of the year. Um, those hedges have helped, but they haven't helped by as much as people would have expected or hoped. Um, and some of that, again, is just the slow motion, in some ways, nature of this sell-off. Um, and it also has to do with the price. The price of options has, has been a little costly coming into this. So my trade construction is not the put. It's not the put spread, which costs less than the put. You also get less. Um, we've been uh, focusing on this trade that they like to call the butterfly. Mm-hmm. Um, and the butterfly is an interesting trade. It's uh, it's it's sounds a little fancy and, and it's got some legs to it. Uh, but what you're doing is you're buying um, a slightly out of the money put mm-hmm. um, and then you're selling two times a further out of the money put. Uh, so, th- so that's a one by two put spread. A lot of people like to mm-hmm. talk about the one by two, buy one, sell two. And way too often that one by two is pitched as a hedge. That's really not a fair thing to say, right? The That one by two could go awfully wrong in the case of the market falling dramatically and vol rising quickly. Um, doesn't mean it's a bad trade. It just means it's not a hedge. Um, and so the butterfly takes the one by two and effectively covers the gap risk to the way downside by buying an even further out of the money put. So you might see something like a, you know, you could do a, a January, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but a, a 275 top put on the Qs a 250 middle put. So you're going to sell two of those and then a 225 downside put, right? So buy one, sell two, buy one. And what I like about this trade is you can treat the package as an option. You can never lose more than your upfront premium on this trade. Um, so long as you keep every, all the legs in place. Um, and it's, it behaves as a, um, low premium, trade that makes money in a grind down. And I feel like that's kind of what we have had. Some days it's been dramatic, but for the most part, we've covered a lot of ground without a true vol explosion 
right? We talked about the high in the VIX just being not that high relative to previous crisis or vol episodes. Um, and so I like this butterfly as a way of betting against the cues for the reasons that perhaps monetary policy has just not inflicted all the damage to risk assets that it ultimately will. Um, I like the trade as well because if I put it on and the cues go straight up, wonderful. You know, that's uh, I'm, I'm probably long risk assets elsewhere in the portfolio. I've lost some premium. I didn't lose too much premium. And then the last part I like about it is that let's say I put a six-month trade on and halfway through, nothing's really happened. I'm actually preserving a fair amount of my premium there. Uh, the the carry characteristics of this trade uh, are quite quite good. It carries very well in a sideways. Now, there's never a free lunch in markets or in options. And so the reason it carries well in a sideways is if suddenly tomorrow the market absolutely crashes, I've actually not made anything on this trade, right? So um, I, I have something that carries well in a sideways, but doesn't do that well in a crash. And I think that that's probably okay in terms of taking that risk. I don't see the crash scenario, even as you can see a fair amount of index points um, lower from here. Uh, you can you can see a you know a further sell off. I don't know that the crash scenario is is in, is in the cards, um, and so that's that's the trade off. The butterfly is a is a uh, is a trade where you expend some premium. Uh, you can never lose more than that upfront premium. It does well in a slow grind down and it carries well in the sideways uh, period. Dean, uh, it's very clear that your directionality in this trade is effectively to be short tech. It works that way. So the delta is very clear as well. Uh, the trade structure is also very interesting. But what, what has been most interesting is the way you have led us to your trade idea. So as the last thing here on the macro trading floor, I'd like people to know more about where where can they find you. They'll probably be asking themselves where they can find more about Neil Kernut at this point. So where is that? Well, you know, one of the things I've been doing for the last four years is hosting a podcast called The Alpha Exchange. Uh, so you can find that on uh, Simplecast or Apple, Spotify. Uh, we, we have a, uh, a Twitter handle, uh, Alpha X LLC. Uh, it's called. Uh, so we're, we're dropping some knowledge around risk and uh, how to think about volatility. Uh, we've had um, almost 100 guests uh, over the last four years, and, and we talk a lot about uh, market risk events. I find that trying to study the periods where markets went horribly wrong is incredibly informative. There's a lot, of, uh, there's a lot to lose when, uh, when vol explodes. And I think that uh, what I try to do on that podcast is talk about the here and now of risk, but also to review history and, and try to see if we can inform our guests or, or sorry, inform our listeners uh, with the, the history of risk events and, and see where there's commonality, where you can learn from from the past as well. So it's it's uh, Alpha Exchange and Alpha underscore EX underscore LLC on Twitter. And guys, I am listening to Alpha Exchange every week on my weekly run. It's such a wealth of knowledge from Dean as his guests. Really a fantastic podcast. You should check it out. Dean, thanks for uh, being here with us today. Really enjoyed the interview with you. Enjoyed it, guys. Thanks very much. Mm -hmm. 
So guys, it was a pleasure to have Dean Kernat on the show, a very experienced equity derivatives person with a very broad macro background who on July 28th, 2022, expressed his trade ideas to be effectively a derivative of being short tech stocks. Now, there are obviously a couple of ways you can implement that. Um, you can do it by a future. If you're an ETF guy, you can buy a couple of ETFs that are replicating an inverse position on the NASDAQ. Um, for instance, there is a uh, ProShares ETF. PSQ is the ETF that allows you to get short uh, exposure to the NASDAQ with only without leverage. So 1x short NASDAQ. If you're in Europe, there is a QQQS uh, ETF that is a leveraged version, but allows you as well to get exposure to be short the NASDAQ. The um, trade construction from Dean was a bit more complex than that. We can talk about that later, Andreas, maybe to shed some light on that. But first, let's discuss the underlying macro reasons that Dean presented to be short NASDAQ right here. So the five, um, how do you call it? The, the, the fabulous five, basically, the five reasons why tech stocks were supported over the last decade, basically, and why he thinks that support might be actually dwindling away. So what do you make of that? Well, if we look at the tech sector in relation to what has happened in, in the macro space over the past two, three quarters, um, then I guess there are a couple of things to, to note. First of all, the tech sector is extremely high duration intensive, uh, which basically means that uh, the average tech company um, will expect uh, a cash flow uh, further out in time compared to, to other sectors of the uh, equity space. Uh, and that makes the sector very vulnerable to a repricing of bond yields. Um, and it's, it, it is essentially the reason, I think, um, behind the sell-off in tech through Q1 and Q2. Secondly, uh, that also leaves the tech sector uh, vulnerable to further upside surprises in inflation because inflation is directly linked to um, the uh, repricing of uh, of the um, yield curve, uh, and and therefore by the end of the day, um, if we look a bit ahead, uh, I continue to see potential downside for the uh, for the tech sector as a consequence of this vulnerability to interest rate hikes. First of all, and secondly, also the vulnerability to a landslide in uh, in growth. Uh, I've made a study on um, the so-called beta of each and every um, sub index in um, in the equity space to a um, a landslide in the PMIs. Uh, so let's assume that we get below 50 in the uh, US PMIs over the coming one, two months. I, th I think that's fairly likely. Then um, you can actually calculate the amount of percent that a stock will drop, at least historically, um, as a consequence of each one index point drop in the ISM PMI index, for example. And if you look at the, um, uh, the tech sector, it is obviously one of the most vulnerable sectors at all to a slowdown in growth. But I actually find it interesting that the financials, um, the financial sector is the most vulnerable on my calculations to a slowdown in growth. Um, we have tech, the tech sector uh, in, in, in the top three uh, and in the bottom uh, with the sectors the least vulnerable to a growth slowdown. You find, for example, consumer staples, utilities, and healthcare. Stuff stuff that people need, basically, right? 
Um, so I think uh, the trade could could work. Um, and if you want uh, a, a relative position in equity space, uh, then I guess you could be short tech stocks and long utilities, long healthcare or long consumer stables, um, because that's essentially a defensive position uh, heading into this growth slowdown. This is a trade that you effectively pulled on a while ago, long the stuff you need, short the stuff you need the least, basically. So the consumer discretionary side of it, your Netflix subscription, basically, against your uh, whatever groceries or whatever you want to name as a consumer staples. When it comes to utilities, the interesting thing is that they're generally considered to be uh, bond proxies. So if you have a view that especially the long end of the bond market will have to price in a higher probability of a lower perspective for growth and inflation going forward as a result of the Fed enhancing uh, and complicating the magnitude and the length of a recession, then actually utilities can can be relatively sheltered from uh, from a slowdown. So that would also make sense, Andreas. I think your analysis is spot on and very interesting, but it is all contingent, as you were saying before, to inflation at the end of the day. Whatever the Fed told us. Yeah, I, I, I just wanted to highlight that compared to the spring where uh, we had this massive repricing of long bond yields, um, then I would actually argue that the tech sector is not the most vulnerable during this autumn because we will focus on the growth slowdown this autumn and not the repricing of inflation and the repricing of bond yields. Uh, and if I'm right, that we will ultimately see slightly lower long bond yields as a result of this landslide in PMIs and, and the growth outlook, then I guess the tech sector is not the most vulnerable since it will have sort of a mitigation effect from these longer low uh, bond yields compared to what we saw during the spring where the tech sector was basically the problem child, right? Yeah, I, I tend to agree, Andreas. And as my mentor taught me, try to stay the closest as possible to the real source of your trade. And now the source of the macro analysis and the trade that we are looking at here is effectively to bet on a growth slowdown, which is surprises on the downside, and to assume that the Federal Reserve will have to remain tight and that the message that Powell sent yesterday was a bit overinterpreted, as in he wanted to give an inch a whale away and people took the entire mile. <laughs> that's probably not what he was looking for. But if you think that that's going to happen, Andreas, as in that the growth will surprise on the downside and the Fed will have to remain restrictive, then being long, uh, long and bonds, 10 year plus treasuries actually seems to be a cleaner expression, perhaps of that view than outright shorting tech. Because as you correctly suggested, one thing is a growth and an earnings slowdown, but the other thing is valuations. And if long and bonds stop going up all that fast and the momentum of repricing of, re of real yields actually slows down, from a valuation perspective, you can argue that most of the pain is behind us. So a cleaner expression could be just to be long bonds, maybe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I, I mean, I've just released my, um, my latest um, newsletter, uh, adding uh, a position in, in the TLT ETF. Uh, so I perfectly agree with that uh, view that long bond yields um, will um, will slow as a consequence of what we experience in growth space right now. Uh, so I, I, I basically stick to the views that I've had for a couple of months now, um, being long the UUP, uh, so the broad dollar index versus peers, um, being uh, long, long bonds. Uh, that was two longs in a row, uh, but I, I guess you understood it anyway. Uh, and then um, finally, I'm also adding 
a um, a very bearish position in commodities now, the SALL ETF, um, which is basically a reflection uh, of a slowing growth cycle in Europe, in the US, in China, in Japan, you name it. Yeah. Talking about uh, one trade which could be interesting here going forward is maybe uh, the Japanese yen. It's been, it, it for sure, it stopped going up. People were talking about 150 a Japanese yen against the dollar. Never happened. Uh, but it seems that generally speaking, historically, if bond markets are rallying, following a narrative, which is a growth slowdown narrative and an over-tightening, let's say, that normally because yield differentials tend to close between treasuries and 10-year and, uh, and uh, Japanese yields, the attractiveness of... Uh, exporting capital from a Japanese perspective all the way back to Europe or the US goes down. And effectively already today, the FX hedged yields for a Japanese investor looking at basically all markets, US especially, are pretty bad. So one might argue that one of the pain trades could be to see uh, actually the Japanese yen strengthen rather than on a yield curve control uh, removal from the Bank of Japan simply on a broad macro growth slowdown and on a yield differential uh, gap closing. I think it's worth to, to keep an eye on the Japanese yen as well here. Yeah, it certainly is. Uh, we debated Bank of Japan, uh, was it two or three weeks ago in this podcast? Uh, and I suggested uh, the idea uh, that the yen could get quite a decent rebound uh, as a consequence of the growth cycle slowing or the potential tail risk that Bank of Japan would have to give up on the yield curve control. Uh, it was never my base case that they would, give, they would give up on the yield curve control. But now it seems as if the yen is starting to rebound because of the growth cycle story, uh, which was the other case that, that could work for the long yen story. Uh, and if you look at the positioning data, uh, so the uh, speculative positioning in futures, uh, the yen is basically more or less the most hated currency worldwide, which is, I mean, if other factors support it, always a good outset for a long. Yeah, pretty much. Andreas, I think we can wrap it up for the day, but I would have to express one um, you know, note to you at least. Right now you're recording from a place where I don't see a fake Bansky, Bansky whatever the pronunciation <laughs> is, behind you. So what happened? You either made the money to buy a proper one or you decided just to scrap it away. What's your problem? Well, um, for once, I'm actually at the office today, so uh, that is uh, that is why you see um, a couple of screens behind me instead of um, a a fake version of Banksy. I think that's the pronunciation. Jeez, uh, I'm so bad. But <laughs> but never mind. Uh, I mean, uh, we we have people commenting in uh, <laughs> on YouTube every week whether I'm on the run because I record from a new place each and every time. Uh, I'm not. I can uh, you can rest assured that I'm not on the run. But I have a lot of places uh, where I go during a week, so that's how it is from time to time. And fun. So let's um, let's ultimately remind our listeners uh, of the conference in uh, New York in. September, the Digital Assets Summit. Um, if you want to look into crypto or digital assets broadly as a macro asset class, this is the conference to go to. And remember that you can get 20% off the tickets uh, if you use the um, the code uh, from, from the macro trading floor called macro. Uh, you will find the link 
and the um, the code in the details uh, below uh, the podcast episode in your podcast app or below in the comments in, um, in the YouTube section. Yes, Andreas, pretty much true. September 13th, 14th in New York. I'm going to be there as well together with a bunch of good speakers, I would say. Maybe worth paying a visit and getting a 20% discount off with the code MACRO. Guys, thanks for listening. We will uh, talk again next Sunday on the Macro Trading Floor.